Hello, and welcome back to Cultured. I'm Clay Morris, style editor. I'm Alice Novinti, beauty editor. I'm Isabella Shirk. And I'm Nicole Moorfield. And we're the features editors. Happy Black History Month. On today's episode, we'll be discussing important Black figures in fashion history, the impact of their work, and the issues of how they have been minimized, tokenized, and often left uncredited. Some of the icons we'll be discussing are fashion critic Robin Gavon, journalist Andre Leontali, television personality Jay Alexander, and journalist Lindsay Peoples-Wagner. So I don't know about you guys, but I automatically associate fashion with blackness, but I think a lot of people have this kind of really distorted understanding of their relationship, and even how some of our favorite black names in fashion, how they've gotten into fashion, what their story is, and how hard it has been for them to make it. I think a lot of people see really big black names in fashion, like Naomi or Tyra or even Andre, for people who are really kind of fashion nerds, and they assume that it's been easy, but there's been a lot of adversity even within those people's lives just because they are Black and it hasn't been as easy maybe as it has been for some of their white counterparts. So getting people to realize that and to think about that in the context of fashion is really important for me. Right. I totally agree with that. And I think a lot of people see these big names and they think, oh, they've always been like this high caliber or they've always been at the top. But usually they're one of the only Black people in that industry at the top. So what we're seeing now is, I guess, just more of a recognition of their past and the struggles they've had to go through. Also, there's a lot of people that people don't know at all, like aside from big names, just people who have been in the background or behind the scenes doing a lot of important work and laying that foundations for a lot of the stuff that we see in fashion today. And they haven't really gotten any recognition for their work. It's also just really interesting to see how far we've come but also how far we haven't come I guess just seeing in my research for this episode that there are so many barriers that are only now being broken it's really I don't know if surprising is the right word but shocking upsetting that the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vogue that only happened in 2018 um So just the fact that a lot of these things that are taken for granted as having come farther than they really have. Right. That's a really good point, Nicole. Um, And I think generally speaking, kind of about how it's shocking. I feel like people also don't realize then when thinking about white people in fashion, that there is a lot of nepotism or connection that kind of just flings people into these spots. Whereas a lot of the black people that we're going to speak about, they've had to really, you know, put their feet down on the pavement and work for these positions in ways that their peers haven't. And that's true in general about the world, I think sometimes, but I think particularly in fashion, when even other white people don't get stuff because of more well-known white people with connections, Black people who have made it and, and Black people who haven't, but they've still been impactful behind the scenes, it's incredibly important to honor their legacy because it puts these sort of things into perspective. Because everyone's going to be able to say, okay, well, there's Gigi, but they won't think about how Gigi's story maybe differs from someone like Jasmine Tooks or even Naomi, who is very, very well known. I think that's a great point, Clay, about nepotism in fashion and I guess just connections in fashion in general. Um, A lot of the people we're going to be talking about started off in really low level positions and they had no connections. And that's why we see 
less black voices um, in general in the fashion sphere. And I just want to say too, that I've always kind of had this feeling where if you like or love fashion, that means that you really love black people and blackness or things outside of whiteness, even though fashion will maybe take black ideas or black people's ideas and repackage them in this Eurocentric way. There are a lot of roots and trends and the way dresses are cut, even the first dress that was worn to certain events, like all these sorts of little mini facts that people don't know, they tie back to black people and blackness. So you can't like fashion or have an interest in fashion and then not also respect the legacy of these Black people that we're going to discuss today. That's a really good point. And I think another area that often goes overlooked is how much um, how much tokenism there is in the fashion industry of Black voices, how, um, how much is used as a diversity card to say, look, we're, we're meeting the mark, we're doing this. Um, I think we're seeing that a lot right now, which it has its pros and its cons. We're seeing a lot more Black people on the covers of magazines, we're seeing a lot more Black people shooting the covers of magazines, but we're also seeing that because there's this um, price, I guess, that's being put on on diversity and making it look like the magazine is more diverse than it really is, when if you looked at their staff, it would not look the way that their magazines do. Um, And so I think it's important to remember right now in Black History Month, that this isn't just something that we can do for a month and say, look, we've checked our quota for the year. It's something that is going on all year. Black history is important all year long, not just in February. And Black voices are important in magazines all the time, not just when it is convenient. Um, Also, this entire discussion we're having about Black people having to fight for certain spaces and being like unrecognized, even though like they're some of the like foundational like voices and work in the industry kind of reminds me of like, I think it was over the summer or a few months ago when everyone was doing like the Vogue challenge and they were like doing photo shoots of themselves like on the Vogue cover. And then Vogue did like an article for it. And I had to chuckle because like Vogue doesn't really have that many black people on their team and like when they do like we'll talk about this later when we cover like Andre Leon Talley but when they do they're not really getting the credit that they deserve so it was just funny to me to see Vogue like um, celebrating people doing their little like cover challenge but then like where are these people in your actual magazine right if the cover challenge happened because you don't put these type of people on your magazine, you probably should write an article about it. You should just fix the, fix the problem. Um, people weren't doing it because they love Vogue so much. They were doing it because they love their skin tone and their blackness and Vogue doesn't. It's what they were getting from that. So Vogue coming back and saying like, look at how much you, you love us and you're loving yourself through loving us. That was very disconnected. Um, and just another example of how fashion is such a powerful lens and these things get warped. Right. I think that especially just shows, I guess, like some of the disconnect, um, especially in that challenge, um, just showing that Vogue has historically, like for many, many years, not been inclusive. And they're taking the opportunity when people are showing that and uh, highlighting that to like make profit off of it, essentially, to get more clicks um, because the, people are using their name online doesn't mean that it's a a good way or it should be interpreted in a good way because the challenge was inherently not so 
I think we're also living in a really interesting world where that challenge drew just as much attention, maybe more, probably more viewers than an actual issue of Vogue, because we're living in this world where there's more autonomy and there's less power being held in these concentrated powerhouses and these fashion houses and these magazines where they have historically really controlled fashion and now we're starting to see more things come from the ground up and I think that's also helping in recognizing the people who are actually doing the work and starting the trends and not just the ones who are capitalizing off of it. I mean that's social media right? People are basically able to reach an unlimited audience off social media. Um, That's not always the case, but it's possible. And so I think that's a lot of the reason why we're seeing, I guess, more of these challenges from like, I guess, the ground up or just and ultimately reaching Vogue and them writing an article about it. It's just kind of telling in terms of um, their inclusiveness and then the power of social media as well. But I think also when we talk about social media and like from the ground up, another thing to kind of like recognize is that a lot of times when Black people specifically start trends, no one really knows that they're the ones who started it. Or like even if you think about Peaches Monroe, for example, who made up the term on fleek, like no one gave her anything for doing that. Or like the girl who made up the renegade dance. I'm sorry, I forgot her name, but I'm sure someone out there knows the girl I'm talking about. Like so many people were doing her dance on TikTok and like she didn't get credit for it till like months after Charlie D'Amelio was getting like advertising deals and stuff for doing it. So I feel like sometimes what we're seeing in the fashion industry, like with magazines and websites is also being replicated on social media. So it's not always even like, a positive thing that social media is doing. Sometimes it's just another form of erasing people. Right. That young lady's name is Jalea Harmon. And you mentioning her and kind of relating it back to fashion makes me think of Anne Lowe. And I don't think we're going to speak about her directly today, but she designed um, Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress. But when Jackie was asked who made her dress, Jackie just said, oh, a colored dressmaker. Jackie said that because she didn't like the style of the dress, her father wanted her to wear a certain style. So that's kind of why she was just like, oh, poo poo, whoever it was. But her saying that didn't allow other people to ignore it and say, well, we won't get this black person credit for it. We'll just attach whoever we want to. We'll just say it was Chanel or whoever made this dress because Jackie was simply like, well, I'm not going to give credit to this person because I don't like the dress. And because it's a black person, I know that they'll disregard it. So if I do that, everyone else will kind of fall in line. And that's exactly what happened with Charlie and Jalea. Everyone was like, well, we know Charlie, so we'll just give her the credit and she's dancing to it. We won't consider why Charlie has more followers, <laughs> why we're not going to give this girl credit. None of those things ran through their mind. And the same thing happens in fashion and in fashion's connection to social media and Blackness. The algorithm perf- like prefers whiteness, I guess, inherently. Um, I don't know why that is because of like developers or like Nicole do you know I I well I've heard this from someone else and I am not entirely convinced that this is all of it I think that there's a lot more racism inherent in it than they want to admit but I have heard from people who are software developers that it's because it's harder to differentiate 
um, from the background because they use black as the default for the background and white as the default for the foreground. And that's why these things are happening. But clearly the fact that they made those the defaults is already a problem. So it's not an excuse, but it is an explanation, at least. It's, I don't think malicious, but that doesn't really change the outcome, does it? No. And that's actually a really powerful metaphor when thinking about fashion as an institution, because the editors are the algorithm, these magazines, which people kind of maybe can't see as these purveyors of institutional racism, racism, they are the people that are kind of making those same decisions the way that the AI or the algorithm would. And even though social media now also plays a role in this, these same people, I mean, if you're publishing a magazine monthly, you know who you're putting in there, who you're not putting in there, who's going on the cover, who's contributed and who hasn't. And it shouldn't take people, you know, honestly, our age, I'm not saying we're old, but up until this point, because it's not new. It's not new whatsoever. And so people like Anna or Nina Garcia at L or Stephen Gannett V, they know who they're prioritizing and who they're not. Um, and we can't let them get away with it. And I think stuff like this, these kind of conversations, even if it's just the four of us, even if we're the only people who ever hear this conversation, I think it's important because at least we will know better than people who are actually being paid to do these jobs. So I think a conversation that I've been having a lot in my screenwriting classes is similar to that one of how people like to see themselves represented. And for so long, that's meant seeing white people represented. And now that things are finally starting to slowly turn, a lot of white people are up in arms saying, I don't see myself anymore. And they're starting to feel what that's like. And I think that's really interesting to turn that reaction back around on people and say, oh, you, you don't like what it feels like to not be represented. Like maybe sit with that for a minute and think about the implications of that before you complain that you didn't see someone like yourself in Black Panther, which is a complaint I've heard far too often. Um. <laughs> That's hilarious to me though, because well, where are they not seeing themselves represented though? Like go watch like any TV show, any movie. Like there's really like maybe just a few movies I can count off where there are not white main characters. Like every Tyler Perry movie, yes. But for huge studios, like when are the main characters people of color, specifically black people? So I don't really know where these complaints are coming from. Like, I don't think they're valid. They're not valid. <laughs> That's the whole problem. I was just talking last night to someone about the show's True Jackson VP and That's So Raven and how they had to do with Black women who were interested in fashion, who had these careers in fashion. And I don't identify as a woman, but still that was enough for me seeing someone who was that dark, who looked like my mother and sister, to see them navigating this kind of world was inspiring for me. Now, I'm also gay, so there was more of an ability for me personally to attach to these people, even though they were women. But it was really the fact that they were Black, because I'm not sure if True Jackson was white well her name probably would be true jackson black people will get that joke <laughs> but i'm sorry <laughs> i don't know if it would have been as effective true jackson imagine true jackson as a white girl i think the problem is the default is so often white people and even people older than us are so used to going on default or the status quo that it hasn't been challenged for so long and now we're seeing more challenging. Of course, there's more pushback, which it shouldn't be because 
a lot of their work or black people's work in fashion has gone unnoticed for so long and we really should include their voices. I've also heard the point made, and I I think it could definitely be argued that every single fashion trend has been started by Black culture, and that really everything has, in America anyway, has really just been ripped off. And I think that that is a pretty solid point that would be hard to refute. I agree with that, Nicole. Especially even, like, if you look at other fields, not just fashion, if you look at, like, music, for example... You could even argue there that like all music in some way originated from Black people and then white people just kind of ripped it off. (laughs) Miss Billie Eilish. There was this controversy about her wearing hip-hop rap inspired clothing that doesn't necessarily fit to conform the female body and people were really praising her for its feminist perspective the way that her style was approaching that sort of dialogue but then there were a lot of black and brown people black and brown women who were saying but this is ignoring how people like missy elliott did this before or the r&b group escape which most black people will know who i'm talking about but she wasn't the first person to do this and she's getting credit for it in ways that people are saying how are you just disconnecting this entire history of hip-hop rap from black people and attributing it all to this white girl with half green and black hair it's not doesn't add up Sorry, I was just. I want to ask you and Nicole, you and Nicole, a question, Isabella. Yes. Because having this conversation, and you two both being white women who have interests in fashion, how does this inform the decisions that you make, or how you navigate wanting to maybe possibly even have a career in this field? Like, does that make you feel like you need to take a step back, or how do you approach knowing the truths about the industry to a to a certain degree? Um, I don't think it makes me want to take a step back necessarily, but I do, I think just in growing in this space and culture space, which is a diverse space compared to um, other fashion magazines, um, it just makes me want to be more aware of what I'm consuming. And I guess in the future, maybe where I work, if I do end up working in fashion, Um, to make sure that place would be inclusive as well and make sure the people around me are as inclusive as I've been surrounded with, like growing in this industry, which I, to be honest, I'm still not sure if I want to career in fashion quite yet because I'm unsure about my career in general, but that's a side note. Um, But yeah, Nicole, what do you think? Um, If I'm being very honest, I, I, it does sometimes make me want to take a step back. It does make me concerned that my existing in a space is taking away from somebody else's opportunity to be in that space. I think that's something that's my responsibility to grapple with. I think the main thing is continuing to have these conversations. And I feel like lucky to have been having conversations like this, um, just so that in the future, I'm not part of the problem and I don't make the same mistakes. If you have watched America's Next Top Model, you know about Miss J. Alexander. He is an icon, not just for reality TV, but fashion, for runway shows. Um, He's also like kind of a living meme. He's like, I don't know if people pronounce it GIF or GIF. I pronounce it GIF. But there's lots of GIFs of him. And 
he's like very iconic in that realm like if you go on the internet and you like look up reaction images and reaction gifts like miss j will pop up what he actually is known for is being a runway coach like i said and he's a person that has taught so many models how to walk and not just like up and coming models or like like people who are already established tyra banks being one of them also naomi campbell which i found surprising because I feel like Naomi Campbell is like, and Tyra too, they're both kind of like known for their walks. But knowing that like Jay Alexander is the one that taught them how to kind of own that confidence and like get their walks together was interesting to me. He's from the Bronx and he grew up like in a family of 10 kids. When he was little, he said that he wanted to be white, which is something that I think a lot of Black people can relate to. Maybe not as much now because there's so much more representation (laughs) and there's so much more access to seeing yourself in different positions that you didn't think you could be part of. But when he was growing up, there weren't like Black people in high positions, especially not really in fashion. And he was also like growing up around the time of kind of like the supermodel renaissance. So like in the fashion industry with modeling, there weren't a lot of black supermodels popping up until like the 80s and 90s. So for him to say that, it, I mean, like it hits home saying like you want to be white, but then to see him become so successful, I'm sure he can look back and be very proud of himself. Those who know Jay like knows what he looks like, but if you don't like stop and Google him because he has very strong um black features Mm -hmm. and for me I have a really big nose and so does he and we're kind of different in personality but again like seeing this person who was just as dark as me and who had very these very strong features knowing that he at one point was a model it's very important and it's more important than people realize and so I didn't know that about him that he wanted to be white when he was little and knowing like how confident he is I would have never assumed that Mm -hmm. but that just goes to show how he found so much power and fashion and how his prominence helped him realize that you know he did have something to offer within his blackness and then the last thing I was kind of going to say about him was that for the last 17 years he's actually been working with the SCAD fashion show the Savannah College for Art and Design and he got like referred to them by Andre Leon Talley so He's been like helping with their show and like helping with running it and casting the models and stuff. So he's also doing stuff in the realm of education. So he's kind of been doing like everything. Yeah. And like speaking of Andre Leon Talley, it was interesting to me that he actually grew up in Durham, North Carolina. So local Mm -hmm. connection to us. And he grew up in the Jim Crow South with his, and he lived with his grandmother. So basically I researched and read that he basically learned a fashion through the black church and going to church with his grandmother every Sunday. And also he started reading Vogue at a really young age. I believe maybe 10 or 12, he found it at the public library. And that's sort of really interesting because his career trajectory eventually landed on Vogue and he was at Vogue for a number of years. Um, He was the creative director in um, up until not from 88, 1988 to 1995. He went to North Carolina Central University too, and then went to Brown. And he actually started and he was go- he studied French at both of those places, which I think is really interesting. And he's like fluent in French. 
Um, and he thought he was going to be a French teacher. And he eventually got an unpaid internship at um, through the Met with Diana Vreeland. Um, and she eventually connected him to his first job at Interview Magazine. I was listening to you talking about him being from Durham and his grandmother was actually a maid over at Duke and he would walk to Duke to get magazines from the newsstand. So it's very, very cool to me that we have this proximal connection to his beginning and his birth of fashion and his family. Like he pulled a lot from this area and I think people would immediately like associate him with like New York and like the major um, fashion areas, but he's really Southern. And like, he's literally from like right around the corner from like our school, which is crazy. Really cool actually. Um, and so, like I said, he worked at a ton of magazines, interview magazine he started with, um, Women's Wear Daily, um, W and like New York Times and other publications until he eventually ended up at Vogue. Uh, Vogue, he did, he was the fashion news director and then he was the creative director. And then eventually he ended up being um, a, contrib- a contrib- contributing editor at Vogue. This is very random, but is his birth name Andre Leon Talley or is this like an adopted name? Because that kind of sounds like really French to me. That's his name, right? That's his name. Yeah. No, that black flavor, like True Jackson, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah. And Clay, as as we had talked about earlier, um, before we started recording, he has this memoir, The Chiffon Trenches. And you had mentioned you'd read that and um, would recommend it. And the part that the excerpt that I read from it was his relationship with Anna Wintour at Vogue and how it was kind of um, good at times, but then at the end it became contentious and he felt that he was ignored when he really contributed so much to the magazine. I wrote a review of the Chiffon Trenches for Couture. So if you look up the Chiffon Trenches and Couture, you will find it. And I talk about how there's just so much that we think that we know about him and about Vogue that he really dispels in his book. I think it's a critical read for anyone who likes fashion. I won't even say love. Like if you like fashion, you you need to know who he is and you need to read the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he talks about one of his main points when regarding Anna Wintour is that Anna Wintour did not make him, he made himself, Um, which I think is definitely true because he started out studying French, nothing to do with the fashion industry, growing up in Durham, North Carolina. in the Jim Crow era and basically started off with an unpaid internship from, I think it was like a random recommendation. So he really had to start from basically the bottom in the industry to get to where he is. And he's an industry giant now. Andre talks a lot about how his knowledge was so important. Like he literally knew everything and he knows everything. It's almost scary. Um, I know people who have met him and they're like, he's an encyclopedia walking. Um, but I think that's also interesting since we're talking about like blackness. And I feel like even though it is impressive, I think some of that may come from this mentality of you have to know or be twice as good to get half as much. And so he knows um, four times as much to be just as good as his peers and just as recognized because he literally knows everything. I'm sure that he knows more than most editors at magazines right now. And he never became the editor in chief of a magazine, but I'm sure he knows more than people who have been in magazines <clears throat> for you know a long time since the 80s so I think <laughs> that was anyway. specific, <laughs> so as 
a fashion journalist kind of like right now in undergrad. I don't know if I'll do this full time ever because it's really hard to do. I look up to Robin Gavon, who is a very well-known within the world of fashion. Um, she's a fashion editor and a critic. And what's so amazing about her is that she has a Pulitzer Prize for her criticism. So she's not just saying, I don't like the shoes. She's bringing something to why she doesn't like the shoes, which I think is important in writing and particularly in fashion, because it can be very nanny, nana, boo boo. I just don't like it. But there's a lot more to fashion than that. And she brings that in her writing. Um, and she's a Black woman too. And so for a Black woman to be critiquing the clothes and the industry that doesn't represent her, that's very powerful because she has all the power in her hands if you really, really think about it. There's a really well-known story about Chanel rescinding her invitation for a season because she wrote a very not nice review, but eventually they started inviting her back because her voice is so important to the criticism. So that just shows how much power she has. And to me, that's amazing. Um, She's worked at the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, Newsweek, and at Vogue. And she was just recently, last year in 2020, towards the end, she was taken up from just being a fashion, the head fashion critic at the Post to becoming the overall critic. So now her work on fashion has become so important and it's so good that people recognize her to just be this very important critical voice. But with all that being said, people don't know who she is and like I was saying people within the circle or people who like fashion know who she is but the fact that people outside of it don't know who she is but she's actually very influential to probably what you have on right now is interesting to me and I don't think Robin's necessarily a voice that's been hidden I think she's just someone where it takes knowing fashion to know her but at the same time Everybody knows Carl Lagerfeld or these other people who have kind of become icons or this isn't a word, but iconized because of, you know, who they are and maybe their whiteness and maybe their kind of marketability as a fashion person. And she's a writer, but I think we can, I think we can love fashion writers and love people like Robin. She's also really well known for writing a book about the Battle of Versailles, which was this huge event in fashion where American designers battled against French designers literally in the Palace of Versailles. She's written like the definitive history of that. And it's an excellent book. It, I'm very dramatic, but it changed my life. Like this is how much I like Black people in fashion. Like both Andre and Robin have like made me like do things. Like, so like <laughs> that book was very influential when I read it. I also suggest that, but I think you should look into her work and appreciate her work. Um, even if it's just Googling her to see what she's done, because She's incredibly influential. And for people to not know who she is, but to know who Anna Wintour is when Anna Wintour really doesn't even write anything or give any criticism that's won a Pulitzer, but this person has, to me, that's not right. So she has a Pulitzer for talking about clothing. Other people do not. This woman is, this is a Black woman, like, <laughs> respect her voice and respect her opinion. That that makes me want to read that book now. Like I I to be honest, I'm not too versed in fashion history, but that sounds so interesting. And now I want to read that book. So she's been a gateway for me learning a lot of things. Like not only I didn't know that you could get a Pulitzer for criticism, I didn't know that you could get it for fashion criticism. On top of that, and yeah. then I didn't know who she was. So I found the Battle of Versailles first. Then the book says Pulitzer Prize winner, Robin Gavon. Then I read the book and I was like, okay, this is why she got the Pulitzer. And then I went into all of her history and I was like, this woman is phenomenal. If 
you don't know who she is or you don't know why you're getting dressed like run into a wall <laughs> because she's she's just that good like reading the book like you will get chills and I know I'm very very gay and very dramatic but I'm serious <laughs> it's that good So someone who's come up a lot whenever I've been learning about fashion and when I've been reading fashion magazines is Lindsay Peoples-Wagner. She's someone that I really admire and look up to, and I think that she's someone that everyone should know about. Um, She, at 28, became the youngest editor-in-chief in in Condé Nast history, and she was only the third Black editor in the entire Condé Nast family, which, again, as I kind of alluded to before, it is really crazy, the milestones that were only broken not that long ago. But she started out her fashion career as an intern at Teen Vogue. She was working in the closet, and she worked her way up from there to write for Style.com. Then she became fashion editor at The Cut, which is really where she found her footing. Um, Then she became the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, which obviously was groundbreaking, and that was in 2018. And then she became recently editor-in-chief of The Cut, going back to her roots. In 2020, she started the Black in Fashion Council, which is an organization that she's been working with a lot of other Black people in fashion to elevate Black voices in fashion, which I think is really relevant to what we're talking about now. And she's been so influential in changing the way that magazines look. I think we give a lot of credit to magazines as if they're this autonomous thing, like they aren't being created by people. And there's a lot of, oh, look, there's people on magazines now who are people of color or are plus size or are disabled. There are people who are working behind the scenes to make these things happen. And Lindsay Peoples-Wagner is one of them. Lindsay Peoples-Wagner is one of the people that I follow on social. And like, she obviously, I think, changed Teen Vogue's coverage and made it a lot more not just popular, but like, I feel like Teen Vogue became more of an institution, like after she like took over it. And she's just an enjoyable person to follow. And she obviously works extremely hard and is, I'm excited to see what she does at The Cut because I already liked The Cut before. So now with her at the helm, I'm excited to see what she does. Representation wise too, she's very important, even in comparison to Elaine Welteroth, because Elaine was also a Black woman at the helm of Teen Vogue, but Elaine is very long, very tall, um, relatively light, but Lindsay is shorter, she's really brown, and she's curvier, and a lot of the times she wears braids, so like just having that in the fashion space and having that look for an editor-in-chief is huge to me. It's again kind of like the True Jackson Raven thing like even for me even though there's a lot of differences in how we live our lives for multiple reasons I still see a lot of myself in her just because of the way that she looks and that's really critical because even though I have a bob I don't relate to Anna Wintour <laughs> at the rate that I relate to, <laughs> to Lindsay people <Peebles-Wise. laughs> I just want to have a bob <laughs> I know yeah go look go look up on Instagram at Clay Morris I have a bob <laughs> but I also have, I think it's interesting to look at the the intersections of this representation that I, that's also someone that I really look up to. But for me, it was because it was a woman in a space that had been largely male dominated, which less so recently. But I think being a woman in a position of power 
And being a young woman in a position of power was something that I really felt drawn to and was something that inspired me about her. So I I think that she's in a unique position that there are all kinds of people out there who are looking up to her. And she's really taken that on intentionally, I think, and has used, especially with Teen Vogue, because it was marketed to a younger audience, really used her position to amplify young voices. All in all, it's important to remember the contributions of Black people in fashion, in the background, in the foreground, on the runway, when they're writing, doing makeup, anything that is part of the fashion realm, there were Black people involved. And even if they're being erased and minimized, we have to remember them and try to look into their histories so that we can celebrate them for all the work that they've contributed. And remember... If you even just like fashion, you love Black people because of how intertwined the two are. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to learn more about Couture. And to stay updated on all things culture and couture.